Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 13th day of October, 2016. It has been said that there is a sucker born every minute. Is that true? I think so. How else could you explain somebody actually thinking that they bought the Eiffel Tower? It was a scam that was pulled in 1925 by a man who called himself Count Victor Lustig. And today I tell his story on the 112th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks for joining me today for a cup of coffee. Leaves. (laughs) So many leaves, like a brown and orange blanket covering my backyard. (sighs) Guess I'll have to rake as soon as I get done recording today's podcast. Hey, look, if you're not doing anything this afternoon, and uh, forget it. You know, as I researched and wrote today's story, I began to ask myself a couple of questions. You see, our story is about a famous confidence artist, or con man, who spent his whole life tricking people into giving him their money. What motivates these people? Oh, I know the money. That's part of it. It's true. But I think there's more. Maybe for some it's just the money, but for others... I don't know, there must be some strange thrill, excitement, and seeing just how far you can go with this, with the scam thing, you know? I mean, look what we call them. We don't call them thieves or criminals. We call them artists, confidence artists. And there's a strange, beautiful art to what they do. And should we put these people behind bars? I mean, when they scam the rich and well-off by using their own greed against them, Well, in a way, isn't that the victim's own fault? I know, maybe we shouldn't blame the victim, but when victims get screwed by their own greed, I don't know. Sometimes I think the marks get what they deserve. Like in today's story, Victor sells a machine that he claims can counterfeit money, and rich people buy it. Of course, the machine doesn't really work, but if it did, it would be illegal. So aren't the people who bought the machine just as guilty as the man who sold it to them? I don't know. But of course, that isn't always the case. Sometimes innocent people do get taken. And the last question is, why do we treat these people like heroes? How come we watch a movie and we hope the criminal gets away with it? I don't know. Well, I don't have any Bigfoot or UFO news today, but I want to tell you about an upcoming episode and how you can help. I want to do an episode with the title something like, I don't know, 10 films you've probably never seen or something like that. I want to talk about some of the strangest, weirdest, unknown films in history. I've got a few ideas, but I'd like suggestions for some more. This idea came from a listener named Joe who has sent me a few emails about a film he wants me to check out. 
And I have checked it out and I was thinking about it, but there isn't enough information to do a whole Coffee with Jeff episode about it. So I thought, so I thought maybe I could talk about a bunch of weird and strange movies. So if you think you have a movie I should know about, then let me know at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com, my Twitter account, my Facebook account, whatever. The odder and more rare the film is, the better. Anyway, how about a story of a man who sold the Eiffel Tower twice? This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. What you're about to see is a thrilling, dramatic, real-life story. Taken from the files of the police racket and bunco squads, business protective associations, and similar sources all over the country. It is presented by Philip Morris as a public service to expose the confidence game. The carefully worked out frauds by which confidence men take more money each year from the American public than all the bank robbers and thugs with their violence. This is an amazing case. Amazing in the sense of its scope and take, which actually runs into the billions of dollars. Although it started with pennies and nickels in the slums and poor sections of our larger cities. The gullibility of many of us is astounding, because there are still thousands of suckers falling for this racket daily. But let's get into our personal angle of this swindle. Before I get started with today's show, I must warn the listeners that this tale is based on a true story, yet I offer no guarantee that it's actually factual. Victor Lustig was a real man, and I'm sure most of what you hear here today is basically true. Yet dates and places seem to vary at every source I go to. This may be because Lustig was a con man and many of the facts were based on what he said to the press in his lifetime. How much of this can be trusted as fact, I can't say. So why don't we all just relax and enjoy a good story? Look, whether you believe the story or you don't, it won't change your life one way or another. So why not just believe it because it's a lot more fun to do so? A wise man once said, if I had a choice between the truth and the legend, I take the legend. He was born Robert V. Miller on January 4, 1980 to an upper-middle-class family in Bohemia, which nowadays is part of the Czech Republic. His father was a small-town mayor who made enough money to send his son to the University of Paris. While at the university, Robert spent very little of his time studying and most of his time gambling and having a good time. Now that's the story that's most commonly told, but according to Jeff Maish, author of the book about Lustig called Handsome Devil... Recent documents reveal that his parents were actually poor peasant people who raised him in a grim house made of stone. Again, what's the truth here? I can't say. As a teenager, Lustig climbed up the criminal ladder from panhandler to pickpocket to burglar to hustler. According to True Detective Mysteries magazine, he perfected every card trick known. Palming, slipping cards from the deck, dealing from the bottom. All this by the time he reached adulthood. Lustig could make a deck of cards do anything but talk. At some point, there was a girl, a jealous boyfriend, and a knife. It left Robert with a permanent scar on the left side of his face, from his ear to his jaw. Yet even with the scar, he was handsome and carried himself like a distinguished businessman. He was charming and could speak his native German and Czech, as well as French, Italian, and English. Everything needed to be a confidence artist. 
After school, and I don't know if he graduated or not, he began traveling the world, earning a living being a professional gambler, playing poker and billiards, both of which he was quite good at. He was also involved in dozens of petty crimes over the next few years. One source said he was arrested 45 times throughout Europe using 22 different aliases. But of all these fake names he went by, the one that was his favorite and the one most people know him as today was Count Victor Lustig, a nobleman from the fallen kingdom of Bohemia. And somewhere in there, he developed his first great con. It was called the Money Box. It was a small mahogany box that looked a little like a steamer trunk with a few knobs and cranks on it. The idea was you would open the top, put in a $100 bill, or some sources say a $1,000 bill, into the machine, and two real bills would come out. Somehow the machine would duplicate the first to make the second. And the whole process took a couple of hours, or up to six hours according to some sources. So after whining and dining a rich victim, small talk would lead to the money box. Of course, Victor would be reluctant to talk about it, but eventually he would do a demonstration of how the box could turn one bill into two. At some point, an offer would be made, and although Victor hated to part with his wonderful machine, how could he say no to the right offer? He would agree to part with his beloved money-making box for the right price. For a short time, the box would work great, until the preloaded bills ran out, usually five or six, then nothing. It was only then that the Mark would realize that they had been scammed, but by then, Lustig was long gone. Some sources say he sold these machines for $30,000 or more. Now, this was in the early 20th century, and plane travel from Europe to the United States was not yet possible. So the rich would take luxury liners across the sea, and, and that was the perfect place for the Count to find suitable Marks to work his con. Now, I've read many stories that claim that he sold the money box on these cruise ships, and, well, I would have to question this. I mean, the idea is to get far enough away from the victim before he figures out the truth. And could this really be done on a cruise ship? Hmm, I wonder. It was on one of these cruise ships that Victor met Nicky Arnstein, an American professional gambler and con artist. Nicky would later be famous for his connection with Arnold Rothstein, who was a loan shark, bookmaker fence, Wall Street swindler, real estate speculator, and labor racketeer, but was best known for fixing the 1919 World Series and for his marriage to actress Fanny Bryce, which was made famous in the film Funny Girl. It was Nicky that taught Victor the art of the con, or so Victor claimed in later years. He developed his Ten Commandments for Conning Men. They are... Be a patient listener to gain the Mark's trust. Never look bored. Wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same ones. Hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Never pry into a person's personal circumstances, for they will tell you all eventually. Never boast. Let your importance be quite obvious. Never be untidy, and never get drunk. These rules are often attributed to Victor, but no one knows if they were of his creation or if he learned them from somebody else. While it is unknown what kind of scams went on aboard the ship, 
he did well enough to decide to make scamming his full-time career. Now with the start of World War I, Victor's days on a cruise ship came to an end, so he headed off to America during the height of Prohibition. Some say he continued his money box scam in the U.S., but the first well-known scam happened in the year 1922. In that year, the 32-year-old Lustig made his way to Missouri. He took the name Robert Duvall and took an interest in a repossessed ranch. Well, he didn't really have any interest in owning a ranch, but he figured out how to make a little money out of the situation. He offered an American savings bank $22,000 in Liberty Bonds for the ranch and then some additional bonds for $10,000 in cash for his operating expenses. Now, Victor really did have $32,000 in savings bonds, and it's, and it's not known where he came into possession of them, but the bonds and the money were put into white envelopes, and before he left the bank, he did a quick sleight of hand, and once he was gone, the banks had nothing but empty envelopes, and Victor had the bonds and the money. Now, as impressive as that sounds, it wasn't as impressive as what happened next. The bank hired a private detective to track him down. They followed him to Kansas City, although some reports say New York City, and he was arrested. But because he was such a smooth talker, he was able to convince the bank that if word got out about how easy it was for them to be taken, it would be really bad for business. So in the end... Not only did the bank drop the charges, but on top of that, gave Lustig $1,000 for his trouble. After that, Victor found himself in Montreal. It was there he hired someone to pick the pocket of a banker named Linus Merton, getting his wallet. Then Victor showed up at Merton's door with a wallet saying that he found it and wanted to return it. Nothing like a bit of honesty to gain one's trust. Merton was so happy with Victor's decency that he invited him into his home. And after some small talk and a couple of drinks, Victor began to bait the hook. You see, Victor had a cousin named Emil who worked for a local bookie. Now, Emil had placed a tap on a telephone graph wire which carried the results of some horse races. This gave Emil the final race results before they were originally posted. And yes, if you ever saw the motion picture of The Sting before with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, it's a similar scam. And I have no idea if the writers of that film had got their idea from this particular story, but anyway, Lustig told them that it was the perfect scam if only they had the money to get started. You know, someone with some cash, someone like, I don't know, a rich banker? Of course, that's where Linus Merton came in. He provided the funds for a few test runs and everything was going great until he was informed that Emil had to leave town ASAP so there was only time to do one more bet. And since this was the last one they could do, they should make it a big one. So the banker gave Emil $30,000 for one last big score. And of course, the banker never saw Emil or Victor again. What made this such a great scam is since the whole thing was illegal, the banker could not go to the police. After that, Victor headed off to France to carry out the scam that he is still known for today. He would sell the Eiffel Tower. Not once, but twice. 
Now, you might ask, how could somebody be so naive to think that they could purchase a global icon in one of the most recognizable structures in the world? Well, you've got to understand that when the Eiffel Tower was built for the 1889 World's Fair, it was only meant as a temporary structure to stand for 20 years before being dismantled in 1909. And at the time, many people in Paris would have been happy to see it gone, since it had been criticized by some of France's leading artists and intellectuals for its design. I mean, in a land of art and culture, Gustave Eiffel had built this huge metal monster in the heart of Paris. Today we couldn't imagine Paris without the Eiffel Tower, but not so much then. And there had always been stories in the paper about it being torn down and the metal being sold for scrap, this due to the high cost of the tower's maintenance. It was on a spring day that Lustig saw such articles and realized that he could use these stories to make a fortune. The truth is, by the time Victor got involved, the city of Paris had decided to keep the tower permanently. But as long as the stories were still being written in the paper, it played right into Victor's hands. He had a forger produce fake government stationery, then began talking to some of the leading premier scrap metal dealers in France. He said that he was the deputy director general of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs, and he swore them to secrecy because he said the government feared a public outcry. The public was not supposed to know about the destruction or the handling of 7,000 tons of scrap metal until it had been finalized. So he first met with the six dealers in one of the nicest hotel rooms in Paris, and then took him out to the tower in a rented limousine. Victor gave him a tour and used the time to gauge which of the men would be the easiest to fool. He wanted somebody enthusiastic but gullible. He asked for bids to be submitted the following day, reminding them to keep the whole thing secret. But at this point, the bids didn't really matter anymore. Lustig already had his man, Andre Possoon. Possoon was an insecure man who felt like he wasn't part of the local business community and thought that this Eiffel Tower deal would promote him into the big leagues. Now, while Possoon was excited about the deal, his wife was suspicious of the whole thing. She wanted to know why the secrecy? Why was it happening so quickly? Why did they meet in a hotel and not in a government office? And who was this so-called government official? Now, how to handle a suspicious wife? Victor got the couple together, and then he made a confession. He was a government official, but he just didn't make very much money, and he needed a way to supplement his income. Then he told them that if they wanted to get this big contract, he would have to be bribed. Now, this was something the Passoons could understand. A corrupt government official? That made sense. The wife was happy and Lustig made a few extra dollars from the bribe he was offered. He received $20,000 in cash, plus there was an additional $50,000 to see that Passoon was the winning bid. But after he received the money, Lustig was on his way to Austria. Then he sat back and waited for the big scam to break, but it never did. Passoon feared embarrassment and chose not to report the scam to the authorities. Lustig was so happy with the way things turned out, he quickly returned to Paris and started the whole scam over again with different scrap dealers. This time, however, things didn't go as smoothly. Authorities were informed, and he was forced to flee to America. 
And this is how Robert V. Miller, a.k.a. Count Victor Lustig, came to be known as the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. But he wasn't done yet. Back in America, he started dealing with the most famous gangster in America, Al Capone. Capone was an unpredictably violent man, not the type of guy the average con man would want to deal with, but Lustig was not your average confidence artist. The con he pulled on Capone was actually a fairly safe one, though. He somehow convinced Al to invest $50,000 into a stock deal. Once he had the money, he kept it in a hotel safe or in a bank for a few months before returning it to Capone, saying the stock deal had fell through. Al was so impressed he gave Lustig $5,000 for being so honest. It was the $5,000 that Lustig was after all along. But it was Lustig's greed that brought him to the attention of the Secret Service by doing things like stealing $16,000 from the home of a Massachusetts businessman and selling one of his money boxes to a Texas sheriff. He was already watched by authorities when he got involved in the counterfeiting game. This was the early 1930s when he teamed up with a chemist named Tom Shaw and a genius engraver named William Watts. It was Victor's job to handle the distribution of the money, and for this he used the alias Robert Miller. This, of course, was his real name, but he had never used it in America before. The group was very successful, producing over $1 million in counterfeit bills. It was estimated that the New York banks were finding over $100,000 in fake money every month. A special task force was created by the Secret Service to find the counterfeiters, and it didn't take long for them to figure out Lustig was responsible. For a while, they couldn't track him down, but then in May of 1935, they received an anonymous tip. The tip was actually by a woman named Billy May, who was dating Lustig, but who was jealous when she learned of the romance between Lustig and Shaw's young mistress, Marie. So on the evening of May 10, 1935, Lustig was arrested. One of the arresting agents allegedly told Victor that he must be the smoothest con man in the world. And Victor shook his head and replied, I wouldn't say that. After all, you've conned me. He was taken to the Federal House of Detention in New York City, a place the governor had proudly said was escape-proof. But, as you might imagine, Lustig managed to escape the day before his trial. And it was something like out of a movie. He used wire cutters that he had been able to steal to cut the screen in a bathroom window, and then used bedsheets tied into a rope to climb down to the ground. And once he was on the ground, he pretended to be a window washer to the spectators outside. He bowed to them before he left. He was actually recaptured 27 days later in Pittsburgh after a high-speed car chase. He was eventually sentenced to prison and spent time at Alcatraz Island. And the cold air must have taken a toll on him because at the time of his death on March 11, 1947, 11 years after he arrived, he made 1,192 medical requests, most of which were ignored. The authorities assumed these requests were all part of an elaborate escape plan. He died of complications arising from pneumonia, and he was only 57 years old. The occupation listed on his death certificate? Apprentice Salesman. On December 11, 1935, perhaps the greatest con man in history was finally sent to prison. 
During his heyday, Victor Lustig was involved in some of the most ingenious con jobs ever imagined. Would you believe he sold the Eiffel Tower? Not once, but twice. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. In 2015, an historian named Thomas Adele, and I might have pronounced that wrong, went on a tireless search to learn the truth about the man known as Victor Lustig. He wanted to find out who he actually was, and he could find nothing, concluding that there is not a scrap of evidence that Lustig was ever born. And like I said at the beginning of today's story, facts in this one may or may not be true. If you search him out on the internet, you'll only see images of him in his later years, the ones that were taken after his arrest. Somehow he avoided his picture being taken for most of his life. Near the end of my research, I came across another podcast called Most Notorious. In its episode from May 25th, 2016, there's an interview with Jeff Mash, the author of the book Handsome Devil, about Victor Lustig. Now, I haven't listened to it yet for obvious reasons, but I, I do plan on listening to it once I've completed this podcast. Anyway, don't forget to tell me about the strangest and weirdest films you've ever saw. You can use Twitter, Facebook, or even my email address to get a hold of me. And look, even if you don't have a film to suggest, just email me and say hi. I would appreciate it. But now, why don't we get into the ending credits? If you can do me a favor, visit our Patreon page. I mean, you don't have to subscribe, but just take a look and think about it. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I'm peeking in your window right now, and I can tell if you're, you're viewing our Patreon page or not, so get to it. If you want to know how to get there, just go to SciCon.fm. That's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. You'll find all the details at the top of the page. Even one single little dollar per month really helps us out. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. And speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. We've got the new and improved Geek Days, Moving On, Half Pints Whole Notes, The History Files, Gordon's Gun Closet, Take 5, and so many more. Too many for me to list here. Check out these and other shows over at PsyCon.fm. And you can get a hold of me at various places, such as my Gmail account, that's coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account, that's coffeewithjeff, and a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. These are great places to give me your story ideas, and I always need story ideas. If you want to support the show, but you can't help financially, then, and you know, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those, I, those reviews really, really do help. I don't have a lot. And remember, all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out 
to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to all. I'll be back next week. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Beantown. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's full of change. Sometimes your plans get made in range. Yeah.